All right, well, happy 4th of July, everybody. Well, I was excited about a month ago when Roger asked me to preach today, and I have a newfound respect for him after preaching back to back to back. Um, I don't know how he does it week after week, but um, we're going to get through it together. Well, my name is Josh Ross. Um, most of you know who I am. If you don't, I've worked here for a couple years now and uh, came under, or over here to train underneath Roger, and uh, it has been one of the greatest blessings of my life to be a part of this church and uh, to work behind the scenes and uh, just to see the lives that have been changed since I've been here has been amazing. Um, Roger asked me to give my testimony today, so um, I want to preface with this. I've got kind of an interesting testimony, but one of the people we forget about so often when we think about testimonies, those people that have the greatest testimony. And those are the ones of you that got saved at an early age and had godly parents and spent their entire lives in church. And it may not be as robust as some of these crazy stories about some of us that have lived out in sin, but I'm going to tell you what, you have the most powerful testimony there is. And uh, I would love to have your testimony and not have to live through the years of sin that I did. And, um, and I thank God for you. But I'm going to open up in a word of prayer, if you'd bow your heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you today, and you've been so amazingly good to us, Lord. And I just ask that you be with our service today, Lord. And Lord, I ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Please give me a fresh anointing. Hedge this, piece about, or this place about, Lord. And Lord, I ask that you help everyone to leave here today closer to you than they are now. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. All right, so on the other two services, I had to preach really quick, and I condensed an hour message down into 30 minutes. But uh, since there's not a service after this, I can keep you guys all afternoon, right? All right, well, if you, if you listen fast, I'll preach fast, and uh, we'll get out of here hopefully by lunchtime, okay? But like I said, my name's Josh Ross. Um, I grew up in the amazing town of St. Clair, which I no longer live in and don't want to live in anymore. But uh, I had an awesome childhood. I had godly parents. Uh, we didn't go to church, but they were a great, the best parents uh, people could ever ask for, that I could ever ask for. And they were extremely patient with me. They've been married 47 years and, uh, and still love each other to death. I know, it's amazing, right? 47 years, and I'm lucky enough that my wife's parents are still together and been together forever, too. So it's just a great example for her and I to have, uh, to look at our parents. It's something this generation just lacks so much, is that loyalty and that, that uh, fortitude to, to make it through like so many of you have. And uh, like I said, I have the best parents you could ever ask for. Now, my father and I, we did not get along growing up. And uh, I think it's because we were so much alike. But when I hit 14, 15 years old, I was so rebellious that my dad wanted me to go live with my grandma. And I don't blame him for that. And you can say that's bad, but you did not know me when I was a teenager. It was bad. And I did everything that a bad teenager could do. And um, it took me 27 years to figure out that my dad was right the whole time and I was an idiot. So you teenagers in here, one day you're going to figure it out too, that your parents were right. You may not know it now, but save yourself some trouble and, and, and figure that out. But my first real church experience didn't happen until I was 15. When I was young, like five or six years old, uh, we went to a church in St. Clair on Wednesday nights uh, just for about two years. We didn't go on Sundays, but uh, we went to Awana's. And we have an awesome Awana's program that Robin runs here. And uh, very thankful for that. But I was a Sparky. I had a whole badge full of uh, jewels and everything, highly decorated, and uh, I was really, I still have, or my mom still has a Sparky's vest. I guess that's one of my greatest achievements to her. I don't really know. Not a very good testimony, but uh, my first real experience in church was when I was 16 years old, and um, I was a, a rowdy kid. I didn't want anything to do with God. I didn't want anything to have, I had authority issues, and um, I, that carried through with a lot of my life, and um, so this pretty girl from my school asked me if I would take her to church. She manipulated me, and, um, and I said, yes, of course, this pretty girl that was out of my league asked me to take her to church. I'm going to take her to church. I had a brand new car, so she wanted me to take her, and I did. Now, she was not nearly as pretty as my wife sitting back there, not even close, okay? She was a troll compared to my wife, okay? <laughs> All right. She's back there. She heard that, so... <laughs> Anyway, so it was a Pentecostal church. I didn't know the difference in denominations back then. Uh, so I went to that church, and they said, hey, you need to pray this prayer. I'm like, for what? They're like, oh, you're just, you'll go to heaven if you pray this prayer. And, uh, and I did, and uh, I had no idea what it meant. 
I didn't really listen. I just repeated after them. Then they had me take a bath at the front of their church one Sunday morning. And, um, and then uh, they had me do a class on how to speak in tongues. And uh, I thought it was hilarious watching people do that. And the following Sunday, I went and I was heckling and, and made fun of some people that were uh, speaking in tongues, and I was not asked to come back. So that was basically my church experience when I was young. And uh, fast forward a couple more years, I graduated high school in 2001. Uh, that sounds really uh, young for some of you, and for some of you, I'm sure that sounds like a long time ago. It does not seem like that long ago to me. But uh, I graduated high school in 2001, and I went to East Central, Harvard on the Hill. I was going to be a kindergarten teacher. For those of you that know me now, I know you can't picture that, but war changes a man, okay? So uh, I, I, I really dodged the bullet on that one. But I was uh, getting ready for college one day, getting ready to go. It was like 7, 7.30 in the morning, and uh, the news was on at our house. And I remember seeing this really tall building with smoke just billowing out of the side of it. You guys know where I'm going here. I saw this, this and they said that a plane, a, a, a big commercial airliner, had crashed in this building. And I thought, what kind of idiot pilot hits a building, let alone a giant building in the middle of the day, or, you know, in the, in, when it's light outside? Like, how could you be that stupid? I thought there were rules, like you had to fly above the building. Seems like a good rule. I just remember staring at that in disbelief and thinking, how could that happen? How could a pilot be so inept? I thought you had to do all this training. And then it happened. That second plane hit that tower. You guys remember that? And instantly, they didn't have to say anything on the news. I didn't hear any of the words that the reporter said at that point. I just knew that this was an attack at that point. Even at my young age, at 18 at that point, I knew that it was some kind of attack. It just, that doesn't happen. And I remember watching in disbelief as I saw people jumping out of that building because they had to make that choice between burning to death or jumping out and dying from impact. I can't even imagine having to, to make that, to, to reconcile that in my brain, to make that choice. But they had to do it. Innocent people. And I was mad. You guys remember how mad you were? I'm still mad about it. So I made the decision that day I was going to drop out of college, and I did that day, and I joined the Marine Corps. And um, it forever changed my life. Um, so I dropped out. I joined the Marine Corps. And um, I got a really good score on my ASVAB. They said, Josh, you can do any job in the Marine Corps you want. And my stupid self, okay? I said, I'm going to kill me some terrorists. I want infantry. It's a great career path for your future. Um, but at that time, I thought that's what I wanted. It was immature, but that's what I wanted. You guys remember how mad we were. And I thought we had vengeance. And now I know vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. But I wasn't saved at that point in my life. Fast forward a year and a half, I'm, uh, I was in Kuwait. I'd been in Kuwait for four or five months at this point. I hadn't showered, barely had any food. I wrote a letter to my mom, telling her, because you'd think it's a desert. It's not cold. Well, it would get down to like 20 degrees at night, and all we had was our, our BDU tops and pants, and we'd freeze. And there was no buildings or anything. We're just sleeping out in there for months and months, eating MREs and, and uh, freezing to death. It was horrible. And uh, I wrote a letter to my mom saying, hey, if you could because there's no phones over there and internet like there was later on in years, but uh, we didn't have anything. I said, could you just send me some socks and some underwear? That would be amazing, please. Just send me that. And because of that letter and all the stuff I wrote in it, my parents started going to church. So God used that, and they're still in church to this day, and now they're members of this church, which is awesome. I get to go to church with my parents. But uh, fast forward to that time, and it was March 19th, we're getting ready to cross the LOD, which is the line of departure into Iraq. In between Kuwait and Iraq, there's these big, like, 100-foot-tall berms, right? And that's the border. And um, for about the eight hours prior to that, we were sitting in Amtrak's waiting to go in, and all we saw were these explosions and fires and flashes of light into the Ramallah oil fields. And... Uh, uh, the, the day before that, so two days before total, uh, my platoon sergeant had come to me. I was 19 years old at the time. And uh, he said, basically, I was the lowest man on the totem pole. The lowest man on the totem How many guys are former military? Okay, it is not good to be the lowest man on the totem pole, the newest person in the fleet, as we called it in the Marines. And uh, he said, Josh, well, he said Ross, because that's what we called each other by our last names. He said, we need you to be the breacher. I'm like, great, what's a breacher? <laughs> you know, I have no idea. 
If you guys know what a breacher is, it's not a good thing. What they do is they give you a roll of canvas about 8 to 10 feet long, and they give you a grappling hook, right? And what that's for is if there's fortified positions like bunkers, they usually put Constantina wire or some kind of barriers, and what you have to do is run up while, while your team or while your platoon is behind cover and concealment, and you run up and you throw that mat over the Constantina wire, cross the Constantina wire, assuming there's a minefield, then you take your grappling hook, this is out in the open by the way, and you throw your grappling hook and drag it to make sure there's a clear lane that your guys don't get blown up on. So I was like, oh, that's cool, I'm going to die now. Um, I was like, well, I just accepted it. After seeing all that fire and everything coming and all the bombs going off for so long, I just accepted, I'm going to cross this LOD. We expected 500,000 troops, uh, and, and our team, RCT-5, was maybe 1,000, 1,100 guys. We just, and we were the tip of the spear in, uh, from the south. We were the very first combat troops in, and uh, we just expected we're going to die. There's this many people, and there's 1,100 of us. Now, technology plays a big part in that. But when we crossed that LOD, that line of departure, all we saw was carnage from what had transpired from our Air Force and our Marine and Naval aviators, and they did an amazing job prepping it for us. And we fought quite a bit that night, but in the morning, there was over 100,000 Iraqis that surrendered to us. And uh, we were very fortunate because if they had the, the will to fight still, they would have messed us up bad. And uh, so we fought for about a month, and we made our way to Baghdad, and I was under General Mattis in uh, 1st Marine Division at that time, and General Mattis said, I'm going to be the first one to take the presidential palace in Baghdad. He said that from six days behind us on the combat train, you know, <laughs> while we were at the tip. He was not at the tip. <laughs> we were. So, um, but uh, we got into a city called Sadr City right before the end of the war, and um, and that's where all the museums and everything were that they were looting, if you guys remember. And uh, we got into the city of Baghdad finally, and we got uh, ambushed by 1,500. There was about 230 of us, I would guess, um, total <laughs> that uh, went into the city. <clears throat> we started out with like 36 Amtraks, but our stuff is like 20, 30 years old, the Marines. We have the handy, hand-me-downs from the Army, right? Because we're Department of the Navy, so the Navy gets the budget and whatever's left over is for the Marines, right? So we had these old Amtraks. We started off with like 36 of these things, and by the time we got to Baghdad, we had 14 left, and they had the same amount of people in the tracks as we did at the beginning. You know, all of them crammed down to those 14. So we got into Baghdad, and um, we got ambushed by 1,500 Special Republican Guard. And, uh, and they, were, they had taken 30-millimeter anti-aircraft guns and pointed them down the streets by propping them up with bricks. And um, uh, so we got messed up pretty bad. We took uh, between 120 and 150 RPG hits in four hours and... In, on 14 uh, uh, Amtraks, you know, AAVs. And we got messed up really bad. We took heavy, heavy casualties. And uh, it was pretty ridiculous fighting. But General Mattis radioed us and said, we still need to take the palace. So that morning, when, after it was over, after we spent four hours medevacking people, we took the presidential palace in Baghdad. And uh, the war was over for us. They said, we took so many casualties that you guys can't fight anymore. That's it. You're going to Camp Diwania, and you're going to be the first combat troops home from Iraq. So I was like, praise the Lord. Not literally. I didn't think about God then. But now, praise the Lord. So uh, we got done with that, and I came home, and uh, I think my humanity was busted at that point. Uh, I didn't think. And you guys, and I know a couple of you guys in here that are combat vets, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. And um, you just don't see things how you saw it before. And, and things that seemed so important just weren't anymore. So I got home, and I had taken a concussion injury really bad on my right side, and um, um, I was having a lot of pain, and uh, they did an ultrasound, and they figured out that uh, I had a tumor on my kidney the size of a football, and all my organs had been shifted from my right to my left, and that's why I was in so much pain. They said, you have cancer. I said, I don't have cancer. I'm 19 years old. I can't have cancer. They're like, yeah, you got cancer. All they did was an ultrasound, mind you. That's our military doctors. Good job. <laughs> Hopefully they've learned some since then. But uh, they said, you have cancer, and I went for about two weeks before I got all the final tests and everything for that, and they said, you know what, you don't have can cancer, we're sorry about that. Well, thank you for the apology after two weeks of just being destroyed. Uh, they said, you have polycystic kidney disease, and it's not as bad as cancer, but it's still terminal. Well, that's horrible. And uh, so uh, they drained my tumor or cyst or whatever a couple of times, and then um, in October 23rd of 2003, I had my kidney removed. And uh, they left 16% of it to attach all the rest of the vessels to. There's eight tubules on your kidney, and they all have a, a vein going to them, or a 
something, a blood vessel going to him. I don't know what you call it. I'm not a doctor. But anyway, they did a nine-inch incision on my side. I actually got to see what they pulled out of me and everything. They kept it and let me see it the next day, and then they sent it off to whoever tests that stuff. So I know it happened, and we'll get to that later on in my testimony. Anyway, they said, you're done. You're, you're going to go home. We're going to uh, give you a medical discharge. I said, no, I don't want that, and uh, fought everybody I could fight did an uh, inspector general complaint trying to get uh, somebody to listen to me, and finally they did. And they said, well, you have 18 months recovery time, and your unit is deploying in a month. I said, well, I'm going. So still with stitches and everything in my side that I busted open two, two times, uh, I deployed to Okinawa, and we were supposed to have this awesome pleasure cruise, right, where you go around, you get to go to Australia, to port, you get to go to the Philippines, you get to go to mainland Japan, you get to go to Thailand, all these awesome places, and they pay you to do it. So three months in, two weeks before we're getting ready to go, they said, hey, your unit's getting called up, you're going back to Iraq. <laughs> so we were in, in Okinawa for three months, and they said, you're, now you're going back to Iraq. So they sent us this little place in the middle of nowhere called Fob Mercury. And uh, it was outside of the big camp uh, where all the, like, Taco Bells and um, showers and amenities like that were, phones. And they put us in this little camp called Fob Mercury. It's where the Special Forces and Infantry guys go uh, because we don't know how to behave around other, other Marines. So they sent us to our own place. Uh, and uh, we were on patrol one day, and it was right outside this city called Fallujah. And this is in 2004. And um, we got a call over the radio that we need to go to Cloverleaf and do some uh, reconnaissance there. So we went to Cloverleaf, and you guys don't know what Cloverleaf is, but you will when I tell you. So in 2004, there was this incident that happened with four Blackwater guys that got caught in the city of Fallujah. And they killed them, and they hung them from bridges. That bridge was Cloverleaf. It was only a mile from our, our FOB, our forward operating base. So um, we sat down and, um, with all our leadership, and they said, you guys are going in Fallujah in two days. And uh, we invaded the city of Fallujah. There was about 150,000 insurgents in Fallujah at that time, and we had about 2,000 Marines to go in, and the Army hit from the other side with a lot more people. And um, we went in there, and the first night we got in a firefight with the other Marines um, for about an hour and a half before we figured out what was going on. It was a horrible firefight. And... Um, that's when it really went downhill in Fallujah. I don't talk about it much. Uh, I lost a lot of good friends. Um, we killed a lot of people. We did a lot of bad things. And um, it, was, it was very intimate and very hard fighting in Fallujah. And it was every day, it was constant. Um, you had little lulls, but not... And um, when I got back, I was completely broken. I mean, I... I didn't have any sense of morality at that point. I didn't really have a conscience. I, I didn't care about people. I had no regard for human life whatsoever. Um, I was just gone. Like, I was emotionally checked out and just completely numb. Um, and those of you Vietnam vets, there was so many, so many guys from Vietnam that came back that had that exact thing, same thing. And if you've ever been through it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I would just sit on my bed and just, like, space out. That's all I would do, and um, I had a lot of trouble. So um, I started drinking because I couldn't sleep at night, and when I did sleep, I had nightmares. So I'd start drinking about six-pack a night, and when that didn't work, I'd go to eight, and then I'd go to 10, then I'd go to 12, and I started drinking every day. And when that didn't work, I turned to drugs because I just wanted it to stop. I'm not saying that's an excuse, but back then, I mean, we had, they had, a, we had a lot better than the Vietnam vets did, but... But still, they didn't really understand what PTSD was and, and all that, and uh, uh, I didn't know how to cope with it. And maybe I was weak, I don't know. I just, I couldn't cope with it. So I went to the division psych, we called him a wizard. The command made me do it because I was getting in fights two or three times a week, at least, with other Marines. And they made me go to the division psych to see what was wrong with me. And uh, after an hour of talking to him, he said, you're undeployable, we're going to give you a military discharge. I said, we've already been through this, you know, <laughs> our, our medical discharge, you know. We've already been through this. And I got back, and my brother was here earlier in the service before. He was with me. Uh, he followed me in the Marine Corps. And um, he was with me that day. And we go, and I tell my first sergeant what's going on. He said, well, I don't care what the division psych said. You're going. You're deploying in a week. And um, we did. We deployed a week later. I had to borrow 800 bucks from my brother to get all the gear I needed to take with me. And I went to Ramadi in 2005 and, and spent quite a long time in Ramadi. And it was a pretty rough place. We just IEDs every day. And um, when I came back that time, I didn't care if I lived or died anymore. 
Um, in fact, I wanted to die, I think, but I, I, didn't, I didn't have the strength to kill myself. I couldn't, I couldn't make myself do it. I, I figured I'd figure out some way, somebody else to do it. And um, on top of that, when I got back, the girl that I was with, I gave her a power of attorney because I only had a week and I had no other options. So she had my car, she had all my possessions, she had access to my bank account to pay my bills, everything. When I got back, she had sold both my cars. She had sold every possession I owned. I didn't even have socks left. Gone. And she cleaned the $30,000 I had made overseas out of my account. I had not a penny to my name and not a possession. And, um, and she didn't really feel that bad about it, it didn't seem like. Um, I checked out. I was done. Um, I would, I, like I said, I just... I wanted to die. I had no regard for anything. I could have killed a small child at that point in my life. That sounds horrible to say, I know, but that's literally the mindset I was in. I had, there was no good or bad, good or evil. There was no right or wrong. It just, nothing mattered. And uh, I would go to bars two and three times a week to pick fights with people just so I'd feel something. And I'd pick fights with people that I clearly had no business fighting. And uh, I got hospitalized many times just, and teeth knocked out of my head and um, and just beat horribly, but just so I could feel something because I wanted to die. And um, I thought if God created this existence, he can have it. I don't want it. I want nothing to do with it. And then uh, fast forward again three years, I'm now back in Missouri. I gave up on California. Um, I'm married to Kayla back there. We have a six-month-old daughter at this point. I have had 13 jobs in 18 months because I was violent, and I was unpredictable, and I was unreliable. And I just was a mess. And she was miserable, but I guess because she's stubborn and we had a six-month-old and she didn't have many options, she stayed with me. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and um, Kayla was shopping at Walmart in Eureka. We were caretaking a big farm in Eureka, and Kayla was shopping at Walmart, and this uh, lady that she used to go to church with, Kayla was in church most all of her life, and uh, this lady that Kayla used to go to church with was shopping at Walmart in Eureka, and she never shopped there. She lived over in Cedar Hill, and she always shopped at High Ridge, but she asked Kayla if she wanted to go to church. That lady was Stephanie Dudley. If you guys know Matt Dudley, our campus pastor in uh, Sullivan, that's his wife, asked us if we'd go to church. And uh, it was only God. Kayla asked me, and I did not like God. I don't had nothing to do with him, but for some reason, I agreed. I don't even, I don't think she even had to persuade me. For some reason, I just agreed to go. You know, that's how good God is. And I went, and I hated it. I didn't like it at all. But I went again with Kayla. I don't remember if she twisted my arm or what happened, but praise the Lord, I went. And I didn't like it. And I went the third time. And I have no idea what happened. I remember him wrapping up the service, and I started weeping. And I got up, and I walked up to that front, and Sam Robinson was there to meet me, and, uh, and I got saved. And I have no idea what I said, but I know that I surrendered my heart to Jesus Christ, and, uh, and that he came into my heart to live forever. And I know I'm going to heaven when I die. And... It was such a just surreal experience. But, it, you know, some people, when they get saved, it takes them years and years and years to get rid of their bad habits. Now, I still got bad habits, don't get me wrong. But overnight, I mean, I'm talking overnight, I became a father to my daughter, a husband to my wife. I quit drinking. I quit drugs. I quit smoking. I quit cussing. In one day, all of it went away. Not because I knew I was supposed to. Nobody told me. I just, God... God knew that I had to have it quick or I wouldn't do it. And he did it for me. But I started to feel again. I knew that I wasn't empty anymore. And um, that was the big thing. And it's been a long process. That didn't heal overnight. It took me a long time to forgive myself for a lot of the things that I had done, especially in war. And, and I, I go to therapy at the VA. I still do it. I haven't done it in like six months because of COVID. But I still do therapy. And uh, I'm not ashamed of that one bit. It's helped me. And I feel again, I have empathy, I have sympathy, I can feel for people, and I owe that all to God. And he has changed me, because the Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That old man, Josh, 
that, that used to was, <laughs> that, that was evil and was spiteful and did all those horrible things, that standard of judgment wasn't for him anymore. It was for this new guy, me. And God did that for me, and it was amazing. Eight months later, God called me to preach, and I surrendered to it. And a couple years later, I surrendered to full-time ministry. And since then, I've done children's ministry, youth ministry, young adults. I've done nursing home ministry, prison ministries, addictions ministries, homeless ministries, and I've pastored. And uh, God has been faithful through all those things. And I have learned so much. And uh, I'm blessed to be at this church and to learn underneath Roger. And... Um, Man, I'm just so grateful. But I want to get to the, the part that happened that Roger asked me to share. I don't always share this because it's so unbelievable that only Christians can know that something like this happens. But I have proof. If you guys ever want to see the medical records, I will show you. So in 2015, I started having bad upper right quadrant pain again. And if you, if you guys know anything about kidney stuff, it's, it's in your upper right or left quadrant is where you feel the pain. Your body is broken into four quadrants in your abdomen. And uh, I go there. And uh, the year before, they had told me that my remaining kidney had cysts all over it, and my kidney function was starting to decline. Uh, so it's a terminal illness, so uh, I was a little worried. And um, they actually anointed me with oil and prayed over me at the church, uh, the church that I was at at that time. And uh, I don't know that I had that much faith in it, but uh, obviously somebody did. So a year later, I go in, I go to this ultrasound because I'm having pain, and the ultrasound lady, I don't know what you call them, but the ultrasound lady, she uh, did the ultrasound, and she just like, hold on a minute, and she got up and left. Like 20 minutes goes by, and I'm like, where is this lady at? Like, I know it's the VA, but uh, somebody should be here, you know, at least wipe this stuff off of me, and she comes back in with my doctor, but I didn't have an appointment with my doctor that day, and so he takes it, squirts that goo on me, and looks at it again, and uh, he gets up, and he goes, just wait here a minute. Well, another 20 minutes goes by, and he comes in with two other doctors. And I'm like, what is going on? He's, so they all look at it. They're not telling me anything, despite my questioning. They said, we need to get you up to an MRI or CT or whatever it's called when you go in that tube thing uh, where they scan you and give you contrast and all that stuff. And uh, they pull me out of that. They're looking at the imagery and stuff, and they sat me down. They said, okay, here's what happened. I'm like... Am I dying? What's going on here? And they said, they said, we looked at your medical record, and I think they made a mistake on your medical record. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, it says that you had your kidney removed, but when we're looking at the scans, you have two fully functioning kidneys. And he goes, you don't have polycystic kidney disease, so that's a misdiagnosis. I'm like, no, you have my imagery right there. It shows my kidney full of cyst, and you have the imagery showing I don't have a kidney on this side. So now... I am the first person ever in history to be completely cured of polycystic kidney disease, which there is no cure. I have no cyst on any of my kidneys. Um, I have 100% kidney function, and when they do the contrast, this kidney actually is a little bit bigger and healthier than my old kidney. So if you guys ever want to see the scar, I've got a 9-inch cut on my side, and I have pictures of my kidney they took out. So uh, it's the real deal. It's a real bona fide miracle. If... Uh, if we were Catholic, I'd probably be a saint or something, right? <laughs> I mean, I should be anyway, so. But God has been good. And I love my testimony and what God's done for me. So I want to preach a message today to you guys, and I'll be quick because I already took longer than I'm supposed to. And um, I've entitled it, There's Power in Your Past. It's really easy when you give your testimony. To give a message on God fixes broken people, of course he does. We look in the Bible, we look at the story of David, if we look at the story of, uh, of Job, which he wasn't broken, but he got broken and got fixed. If we look at the story of Peter, my goodness, for a guy that put his foot in his mouth, God sure loved him, and he just kept getting back up. And David, there's not a guy in the Bible that made more mistakes than David. And what did God say about him? David is a man after my own heart. I love the story of David and Peter, because no matter how much I mess up, I can look at them and be like, whew, I'm getting another chance. Praise the Lord. But there is power in your past, and I want to show you guys how to draw from that today. 
Luke chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house and show how great things God had done unto thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. Now we're talking about the maniac of Gadara, probably one of the coolest characters in the Bible. This dude was so possessed, and that's a bad thing, by the way, but this dude was so possessed, wrapped up in chains, he could... Ah, break those chains. How amazing is that? I wish I could do that, but I can't. And the maniac Gadara could do that. Everybody in the land knew who the maniac of Gadara was. They would warn people before they would go to the tombs, saying, don't go up there. There's this lunatic there that breaks chains and runs around naked accosting people. Don't go there. If somebody told me that, I'd be like, I don't want some naked dude attacking me in a, in a cemetery. I wouldn't go there. But this tormented man was an outcast, and everybody knew about it. But when he saw Jesus, it says that he screamed at the top of his lungs as loud as he could, and he begged for mercy. And Jesus commanded the demons out. They said, no, please don't send us out into nothing. He put them in the pigs. They ran off the cliff. You guys know the story, right? And he was free. And God didn't just fix him physically. He fixed him spiritually. And of course he did what all of us would do at that point. It was such a great transition. He was so overwhelmed with gratitude for what Jesus had done for him. He had such a powerful testimony. But he wanted to, he wanted to join Jesus. That's what I would have tried to do. I'd be like, man, thank you. Can I go with you? I want to see what else is going to happen. But he said, no. I want you to go to your people and share your story. Share your testimony. And he did, and he was faithful to that. What had been a burden was now a powerful testimony to the people in his area. It became his foundation, his purpose. He may, or he was the proof of what Jesus did. He didn't know a lick of scripture. He didn't know one bit of it. He may not have known anything about God, but I tell you what, he knew about what Jesus did for him. And how many countless people in Gadara are now spending eternity with Jesus right now because he allowed his terrible past, the things that he had been to, become a story of redemption and purpose. How many people are in heaven right now? Not only that, as Christianity works, we have a trickle-down effect. How many people throughout history are a result of his faithfulness that God saved? It's an amazing thing. You know, when you get saved and you see somebody saved, you're faithful to God, you give the gospel, somebody gets saved. Not only are they on your account for crowns that you get to cast before Jesus' feet, the people they get to see saved are on your account too. It trickles down. And I don't know about you guys, but I want to put a whole dump truck load as a down payment on, for crowns when I get to heaven. I know I can't pay off the debt that I owe God, but I'd sure like to put a nice down payment down. I'd like to do as much as I could. The thing is, people can't deny Christ when it comes to this. Now, I deal with people constantly, right? Apologetics is my passion. I love discipleship and, and, and defense of the faith. But I constantly am talking to people, and we see it in the world we live in, that they deny Christ. They dispute Scripture. They, they deny prophecy. Uh, the things that are right in front of our faces, they can't see them like we can. Maybe it's because we have the Holy Spirit. I don't know. But things that just seem so obvious to me to lost people and to the world, it's just nonsense to them. But I'll tell you what, they cannot deny, they cannot dispute, and they cannot ignore when God changes someone's life. They can't do it. They can deny anything you say, but they can't deny the change that takes place in a, in a believer's life when God brings them from death unto life, when he quickens their spirit and they come to life spiritually that they were once dead. No one can argue that fact. You wouldn't believe how many people from my past that uh, I run into, like, hey, Josh, what are you doing now? Yeah, I'm a preacher. Ugh, no, you're not. What do you mean, no, I'm not? Yes, I am. You can't be a preacher. Well, why not? What's the qualifications? But they don't believe it because of the life I used to live. You're a new creature. That old Josh is dead, and that new Josh is alive. And I can't be held accountable for my, the old Josh when the new Josh is who's living today. 
our past and our pain, the adversity that we've overcome is meant to serve as a testimony of God's faithfulness and his power. It's the evidence that God can take what was meant for evil from the devil and God uses it for good. It's that evidence. And I'll tell you another thing. God never wastes our pain. Only we do that. God will never waste one drop of your pain. And we cannot ignore our past. It's part of us. The problem with our past is our pain. And we don't allow our wounds of our past to heal. And I know that's a tall order for everybody in here, including me. But we have to allow those pains from the past to surface. You have to deal with them. You have to digest them. You have to grieve if you need to, but you have to let them heal. And if you let them heal, it will give you power. And in order to let them heal, you have to let them scar and leave a mark on you. And I tell you what, every bit of my hurtful past has left a mark on me that I love today. It's perspective and it's empathy, and it's sympathy, it's compassion. It's things that I need in my Christian walk. Scars are simply wounds that are healed. And because they're healed, they no longer carry the pain and the shame that they once did. Scars are a good thing when it comes to the Christian life. It's like street cred. You need it. We should never hide them. They are a weapon in this spiritual battle of ours. And because of your testimony... Because of that, we defeat the devil in at least three ways. And I'll be quick about the three ways so you guys can go home. Number one, your testimony connects us all. A struggle that all Christians face, uh, and and me especially, and, and pastors and everybody that's a Christian face, is how transparent to be with people. Right? How many of you guys face that? How many of you guys view yourself differently as everyone else views you? Oh, You guys are so interactive today. I'm going to get something out of you, I promise. But let's look at social media, for example. We only see, we only let people see what we want them to see, right? How many of you guys are on social media? I know more than you guys are on social media than that. But let's pick on the ladies for a minute, guys, okay? All right, you guys good with that? All right, good. All right, let's pick on the ladies for a minute. How many of you ladies, don't raise your hand. I wouldn't do that to you, I promise. How many of you guys, ladies have used a filter on Facebook? Or what is it, which is the one that does filters? Is that Snapchat or is that, I don't know what all of them are. I'm just on Facebook and that's it. Uh, but uh, anyway, use a filter. How many of you ladies have went to get a profile picture and you take 20 pictures and pick the best one? Come on, let's be real. You try to put the best representation of you first, and that's natural. But it's not always what people see. Um, I mean, I've seen some funny filters where they take old men that are in their 80s or whatever and wrinkled horribly, and they take them and they have super smooth face, or, you know, face and all that stuff, and that's what I'm talking about. But in reality, we're far from what we portray ourselves as. And what it does is it creates impossible expectations. The problem with that is when you always seem perfect to people, those same people that see you as perfect can no longer accept your failure. Does that make sense? When they see that everything you do is perfect, everything you portray is perfect, everything you represent is perfect. When I used to pastor, I was, I was kind of taught that pastors were supposed to separate from uh, church members. Um, I've even had some pastors in the past tell me that pastors can't be friends with their church members, which is nonsense. I don't think you can be a good shepherd without being a friend to your people. But I was taught that you always make it look like everything is perfect. You know what happens when a pastor messes up in that situation? They're destroyed because people cannot accept failure from them. And when we portray ourselves that way as Christians, the outside world, the lost world, your friends and family that are lost, when you portray perfection all the time and then you mess up, you know what happens? They shut you off. Because you don't show what's really going on. If we show them that we're a bunch of imperfect people trying to serve a perfect God, and messing up periodically, you know what happens? They respond because they can see that they have the same kind of problems. 
Your failures humanize you and make you approachable. And in a world where Christians are demonized now, especially the America that we live in, we're bigots, we're racist, we're homophobic, whatever you want to say, we need everything we can get. We need all the help we can get. And your testimony is the most powerful weapon you have, and I'll say it again later, but your testimony is the most powerful weapon you have outside of the Holy Spirit. When people identify what you've gone through, then they're connected with you. Number two, your testimony gives you power over your past. Most people believe that they're completely healed of the wounds, they're free, and they're freed from their past. But let me ask you a question. How many of you guys tell every aspect of your past if somebody, somebody says something? How many of you are afraid to speak about something in your past? Don't raise your hands. Because if you're afraid to speak about it, you're not healed from it, and it has power over you. Instead of drawing power from your past and helping somebody that's going through the same situation, because brothers and sisters, listen to me, somebody in this church is going through the same thing you went through. Whether they're saved or not, there's enough people in here where it is feasible to think that whatever you've been through, somebody else is going through it. And you might be the one person, listen to me, the one person that can help them through that. And God means for you to. But you're embarrassed by it. You know who's not embarrassed by it? God. He's not embarrassed by your past. Why should you be? You're not the same person. And you say, preacher, listen to me. I did this after I got saved, so it's different. No, it's not. It's not any different. So you're saying that you still have a sinful nature after you get saved? Come on, obviously. We all mess up. I'm not saying it's a good thing. But God... This is the coolest part. Before the foundation of the world, God knew who you were. He knew every hair on your head. He knew the day you'd get saved. He knew every sin that you committed in your past. And guess what? He knew everyone you'd do after you get saved. And in spite of that, in spite of that fact, He chose you out of love anyway. It doesn't matter what you do. You know what God sees when He sees you? He sees His Son. You're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, and we, we neglect that as Christians. We forget that when God looks at us, he sees the blood. When he sees me, he sees righteousness. I have no idea why, but when he sees me, he sees righteousness. He sees perfection, not because I deserve it, but because Jesus set his blood on that cross, and he applied it to the mercy seat, so that way, when God sees me after I'm saved, he sees his son. It's not because we deserve it. It's because it's a free gift and we accepted that. But we live our Christian life so wounded that we forget that we have that power. The Holy Spirit is so powerful and as Christians, we don't use him whatsoever. And I'll say this again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It's, I love this verse and it's so paramount in this message. Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Stop holding yourself accountable for things you did before when you're not the same person now. God doesn't remember them. So basically you're saying that you have a higher standard of judgment on yourself than God does. That's not a good place to be, brothers and sisters. That's a sin. Forgive yourself. God commands you to. Number three. And I'll be done. Each one of us was rescued and brought out of something for a reason. I'm not saying we were saved out of something. I'm saying during our Christian life, we were brought out of something, and there's a reason for that. No matter what happens in your life, no matter what, I've, I've taught a class on this so many times, whether something bad happens or you experience something, or no matter what God allows in your life, as long as you're living for him, it's to draw you closer to God. It's as simple as that. No matter how bad, good, or indifferent that situation is, God is going to use that to draw you closer to him, and that's all you need to know. It doesn't make it easier, but that's your reason. 1 Peter 2.9 but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we live in dark days today. But this is the point I want to get across to you. If you listen to nothing else in this message, listen to this. And this is why your testimony is so powerful. 
You guys might not study apologetics like I do. I'm sure a lot of you do. I, there, I know there's a lot of very scholarly people in this building. But you are the only Jesus that the world is ever going to see on this side of heaven. Listen to that. You, personally, draw a circle around yourself, are the only Jesus, the only Jesus that people will ever see this side of heaven. Now, everybody, whether they're saved or not, are going to bow, or bend a knee and bow to, the, to, to Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But on this side of heaven, Jesus isn't coming back yet. And when he's not back, we're the Jesus representation to this world. And we fall so short of it. Have we forgot about, as Christians about what Jesus has done for us? How God has intervened in our life? More than ever, people in this country and all across the world need the confidence that God is real and that he loves them and that he can transform their lives. Your testimony is what carries that hope for people. I don't need you to stand on the foundation of the Bible as a lost person. I need to tell you what Jesus did for me. And when that's irrefutable, I have a foundation to build off of. Kayla and I volunteer at a food pantry every week. I'm kind of the chaplain for them. And uh, we, we help homeless and drug addicts constantly. I'm doing placement for both of them, trying to find them homes and, and uh, um, uh, rehabs to go to and stuff. And, and it eats up a lot of time. But do you think those people would listen to me if I haven't been homeless or I hadn't been a drug addict? Do you think they would, would know that I feel what they feel? And I've been both of those things. And I use this saying, I stole it, and I'm going to continue to use it. It's not mine, but I'll take it. It's people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Listen to that. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Basically, this world is so disingenuous at this point, nobody cares what you have to say until they feel that you're genuine with them. That's why we have churches closing left and right in this world. That's why people are fleeing from Christianity, because we're not genuine anymore. This church is different, but there's a lot of churches out there that just don't care. And because of that, lost people see how hypocritical we are. And if we just tell them from the up front, hey, I got problems. I'm Like I said, I'm just an imperfect guy trying to serve a perfect God. And they knew that up front, we'd probably do a heck of a lot better. But your testimony is the only weapon that God gave to only you. You are the only one that has your testimony. And that testimony was not meant for you. How many of you guys sit in the mirror or sit on the couch and be like, I'm going to tell myself my testimony? Nobody? Try it if you want. It's fine. Maybe it'll remind you. Your testimony is meant for other people. Your story is meant to help one person or two people or three people. I guarantee you there's nobody in this room that has been through something that somebody else in the world at some time hasn't been through. There's nothing new under the sun is what the Bible said. But I guarantee you this, that your testimony is the key to somebody getting saved. And until you share it, that person that God meant for you to use it for is not getting it. Because we're scared of what people will think. For every one of us, your specific testimony was meant for a specific person, specifically for God to see them saved. Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. I'll close with this. Your testimony is the absolute most powerful weapon that you possess against the devil, against lost people to see them saved outside of the Holy Spirit of God. Obviously, the Holy Spirit of God is the most powerful thing that you possess as a Christian. But your testimony is so unique and so, so sculpted to help specific people. But we don't share it. The sad part is most Christians look at their past as an adversary and, and they want to keep it locked away instead of using it for, as a springboard to help the lost community around them. I guarantee you when you're dealing with somebody that's hurting and needs to be saved and has this emptiness inside them, if you say something bad about your past, do you think they're going to judge you while they're sitting there opening their hearts to you? Of course not. 
and be like, you know what? This guy's a screw-up just like me. And God's using him anyway. Very few people that have made the same mistakes that I have in my life and, and lived the horrible life that I lived. But God uses me in spite of that. I don't know why. Maybe it's because he's good, because I'm surely not. But don't you think it's time that you learn to use your testimony as a weapon, as a tool? Instead of keeping it choked away, out of the light, away from the people that need to hear it? I think it's time as Christians to get over ourselves and our self-pity and um, open up. Be real with people for a change. Uh, this is a problem that we have. I didn't say this at the other services, but I think it's important to focus on how fake this world is now. As Christians, and, and I think the word is disingenuous, everything is at our fingertips all the time. And I'll close because I'm, I'm already over time. Everything is at our, face, our fingertips right now. If we want information, we get on our phones. If we want Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, what's the, TikTok is the new one or whatever. TikTok, I can't get on that. I don't think I'd have a life if I had TikTok. Um, but uh, some funny videos on that. But all this information and everything is our fingertips and everything's so fake that people are searching for something authentic. Bob and I have talked about this a lot, and my wife and I have too. These teenagers are just searching for something authentic in their lives because everything is fake. Everything is, is just materialistic. Everything is just at surface level. There's no depth to anything. And if we would just get real as Christians... And say, hey, I got problems too. Let me tell you about them so you know that, that I'm not perfect like my Facebook account says I am. I don't think kids even use Facebook anymore. But if we just get real, we would change this world. And this generation coming up would be better than any generation before. But we don't. We sit idly by. It's time you learn to use your testimony. I'm going to close in prayer, and then Roger's going to come up and do an invitation. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you today, and I want to thank you for allowing me to preach your word, Lord. Lord, I thank you so much for these people here. I ask that you help them to get home safely, Lord. And Lord, I ask you to help them to reflect. I should draw a circle around each and every one of their hearts, Lord, and convict them. And Lord, that they would leave here closer than when they got here, Lord. Thank you for everything you do in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.